Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist. Hello, Miss Laura. This is Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist, calling from La Quinta, California this week. You're there, and I'm in Macon, Georgia, so we're back completely <laughs> <laughs> out I mean, of our normal little spot. Yes, yeah. we are. Doing we're doing the show we're traveling. How about that? Yeah, cool. Yeah, are you having a nice trip? It's nice. It's uh, we're visiting family, and it's a it's a quiet, sedentary, you know, low key visit, but nice visit. So that's well. I've had the opposite experience since I've been in Disney World, where it's never quiet, never low key. (laughs) (laughs) But it was it was yeah. It's been a lot of fun. You know how much I like Disney World anyway. And our youngest, you know, we've been there. A lot. I think this is our sixth trip as a mom or as parents, and I went a couple of times as a kid. But I had some observations to share about that place, and it was so interesting for me to go this time and kind of, I guess when you're taking three, when all three of our kids were little and I was so involved with them and making sure they were having the best vacation ever and, you know, all those things that we do as moms. And this time, since we only had Macy with us, who's 15, Oh, I got to really Macy, kind huh? of just make the other boys couldn't pay because, you know, we didn't decide to go until uh, the week before last, you know, like a 10-day notice. And usually when we go to Disney World, I have a binder and it's all planned out and, you know, I've planned, you know, every minute of every day. And so this time it wasn't like that at all. And, you know, and we did the space shuttle launch, too, on Friday. So that's the real right. reason we were going. And we couldn't get hotel space um anywhere except Orlando, which is about an hour from the Kennedy Space Center. And, you know, I can't go to Orlando without going to Disney World. So we had to add that. <laughs> Boy, I kind of, <laughs> I know. We're no opposite like that. But it just kind of kept, you know, get turning into a bigger trip and a bigger trip and a bigger trip. But this was so different for me because I didn't have three kids. I just had one yeah. teenager. And so I got to watch a lot of people mm-hmm. and a lot of parenting (laughs) right (laughs) oh and that place really i mean it's supposed to be the happiest place on earth but really it's more like that dickens it was the best of times it was the worst of times because it brings out both ends of that whole gamut of emotions because you know you're in july in florida when it's 95 degrees and 95 percent humidity you know it's hot and people are tired and their kids are out of their routines and dysregulated, so we saw some really horrible parenting. <laughs> you know, just oh, really? where you would almost <laughs> yes, and kids again, you know, who are just screaming because they're so overstimulated, and the parents would turn into screamers too. And you would think, oh my gosh, I don't know who's upset. You know, more upset the three-year-old or the thirty-year-old, and. Just lots of things like that. And then we saw the worst thing, well, there were lots of episodes of almost like verbal abuse where you would think, I can't believe that mom is screaming like that. And, again, some of these kids were older. But the worst episode was this gigantic man. I mean, he 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 would make even your husband and my husband, who were both 
tall <laughs> look short compared to them. I mean, I don't know if he's a professional athlete. I mean, he obviously was not. He was speaking another kind of European language. I think it's probably Russian or something. And he kept smacking his kid, who was five or six, on the back of the head as they were mm-hmm. walking down, I know, down the street, you know, Magic Kingdom. And out of, you know, and Johnny's saying, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I'm going to have to intervene right here in Disney World. I can't believe, you know, what am I going to do? You know, he's kind of in his kind of ethical dilemma there. And all of a sudden, just four Disney staff people, just men, came, I guess they were security people, came out of nowhere and just pushed him into this panel and a wall that, you know, you didn't even know was there, you know, just whisked him away. And I thought, well, Yes, thank goodness for that because I mean, and took the wife and kids too. But it really, I mean, it was that scary. With you know that Hmm. you're thinking, I cannot believe he's really, you know, giving this kid whiplash right in front of me. What am I going to do? We're here. So it was good that the security people stepped in. But there were lots of instances of great parenting too, that where you saw a mom who would be you know, with a a kid who was just almost out of control and they would kind of step in and do the right thing. And you would think, oh, that's so good. Who taught you that? Or how did you know that? Or, you know, do you know what I mean when you see those really great episodes that kind of restore your faith in humanity? (laughs) (laughs) And you think, oh, that was so good. That really balanced out, you know, the other dysregulated parents because of their dysregulated kids. And so it's just kind of a nice, a nice, uh, time of observation to uh, watch all of that and to kind of see some of that stuff uh, come together. And so many kids with different um, issues were there. I don't know if I just noticed it more now. I mean, we've been to Disney a lot, and I guess because I was not as um, hung up on my own kids and trying to wrangle three instead of just one who's very independent. But lots of kids with Down syndrome, lots of kids that, you know, had visible things that, you know, who were had visual impairments or hearing impairments, you know, that you could see their equipment and kind of know that. Kids who were obviously on the spectrum, whether their parents know it or not. Um, mm. You know, just lo- lots and lots of, you know, and even, you know, just to kind of look at that, those developmental issues with, Moms who were speaking, you know, words that I don't understand. So you know, you know that it's not English, and you think, oh my goodness, you know, this is so. This is not a cultural thing or a specific to you know our little world. It's you know, developmental issues are global, and so it's just interesting to kind of watch some of that and be reminded of that, and watch kind of the good, the bad, the ugly, and just kind of take it all in and. Um, just to just kind of think about it and how what a challenge that is to take family on vacation with a kid who's um, probably a big big challenge at home and then still be willing to uh, to do that and to spend the money and to take the time and the effort and again the parents who were handling things beautifully there was uh, one family in our restaurant uh, in our hotel and they were standing outside looking at the menu I guess to decide if they were going to come in and eat or not. And you could just see the little boy getting more and more frustrated because he was trying to get a sweater off. And, you know, I can't imagine that he – I bet his mom didn't dress him in a sweater, you know, in 95 degrees. I bet he insisted that he wear that darn sweater. 
and that he couldn't get it off. And he's, you know, his behavior is about to escalate, and the parents are still standing there, and, you know, the mom's holding a baby, and there's like a preschooler there too. And, you know, you're watching all this unfold, and you're thinking, what are they going to do about that kid? He's about to blow. And then all of a sudden the dad turns around and notices it, jerks the sweater off kind of in one big move, and then scooped the little boy beside him and started rubbing his hair still while he was talking to the mom. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, he just did his whole little sensory diet there. You know, we're what was, I know, it was so good. You know, I'm going to run up and say, you're doing such a good job. And Johnny told me to sit <laughs> telling parents that because I was freaking people out. <laughs> and I would, I would try to guess how old kids were, you know, with toddlers and think, okay, She's using some two-word phrases and, you know, just kind of look at a kid and kind of guess where they were developmentally and then ask the mom, how old is she? And you could see by the end, Johnny and Macy, would, I would start to lean forward to talk to the kid and after my third or fourth thing to say, uh, Johnny or Macy would jump in and say, she's a speech therapist. She does this to everybody. She likes to guess how old the kid is, and that's what she's doing right now. So, you know, don't tell her yet. Make her ask him a few more questions so it kind of turns into a day. But they, they thought that uh, people were thinking that, that uh, we're going to worry about me stalking their kids or something. So, But we had, we had a really good time with that, that little guess how old the kids are. And I only missed, like, one or two kids. I mean, I was, even with babies, I was good, like, about saying, I think she's seven months old, and the mom would say, seven months? Yes, that's right. So that was that was kind of a cool game to play. Yeah, and you were certainly so, a good place to play it. <laughs> I know, because we saw everything. And so even the bus rides and the monorail rides and all that, all those traveling delays that you have there were kind of fun for me because I could do that. But, again, uh, Johnny and Macy are about sick of me playing my little – games. Johnny would say, Why don't you just take out the Rosetti and do it right here? So it was kind of funny the end of the trip. <laughs> oh well. I know, but the reason I'm not telling all these stories just to be entertaining. The reason that I'm really bringing this up and trying to kind of tie this into the show is because so many parents need our help with really practical strategies with how to handle things like vacations and when kids are falling apart in public and all these issues. And sometimes as therapists, especially if we don't do home services, I mean, if the kids are brought to us, if we're in a clinical setting or a school setting or or we don't routinely interact with parents as much as we do with home visits, but sometimes even therapists who see kids at home forget that we need to do lots of parent education about how we know how to handle dysregulated kids and how to look, you know, to make sure that everything is not blamed on bad behavior or, um, you know, any number of things that parents could misassign a reason that a kid is falling apart. You know, I was so pleased when I would see a kid as, really crying and, you know, tears streaming down his face and, you know, a parent scoop him up and grab a cold drink out of a backpack and, you know, hug him and give him some kisses and jiggle him around. And then they were all better as opposed to the parents who, you know, pretty much did the whole, why are you crying? You're a Disney World, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) And we really need to stop and think about that and educate parents with with those strategies and with those those real-life, things that some of us just instinctively know how to do because parents need that kind of help, uh, especially with our, the kids that we see, with the kids that have the developmental challenges. Uh, so 
that's how I wanted to kind of tie all that together because I do think we forget that that's a big part of our jobs. And sometimes therapists are too scared to do that to kind of jump in and say, you know, I let's talk about a better way to handle this. Or, you know, my read on this is not that he's just being bad. You know, he he doesn't understand what you're telling him to do or he's, Again, you know, there are other reasons that he could be acting this way, not necessarily, you know, he's just a bad kid or he's trying to push your buttons or those kinds of things. And boy, did I see that. I wanted to intervene a lot more and say, you know, it's 95 degrees. No wonder he's crying. I want to cry too. Don't be mean to him. You know, of course, you can't do that. But we can help the parents that are on our caseloads of, and uh, understand those kinds of issues that do come up in real life. So that's all I wanted to say about that. And you don't have anything to say about that, huh? Well, I don't know if you've been aware. My phone's been making funny noises, and I don't know if... Oh, um, you, you can't even hear me, huh? Well, no, I can on and off. It's it's a cordless phone. The, our cell phones oh. don't work well out here. And um, yeah. I was just it was just doing the thing, and I was thinking, I wonder I can't if people can hear that. Okay, well, that's good. I, I Yeah, I can't hear that at all. But I just thought it was an it would be an interesting thing to remind, especially our therapists who listen, because a big part of our audience are people who do what we do, who see babies and toddlers and young preschoolers with communication challenges, whether they be speech pathologists or developmental interventionists or special instructors or teachers or whatever they call themselves in a particular state, but especially those of us who see parents face-to-face. And, and, you know, we need to use all of our opportunities to teach them tricks and strategies and better ways to do things than uh, they may know about. And, again, I think nothing can bring those kinds of difficult behaviors out quite like a vacation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we need to, and you know, new environment, new routine. Kid is obviously, you know, having some different stresses than he might normally have at home, you know, just overstimulation from all the visual stuff, all the tactile stuff with, you know, just being crowded and people right in your space and all just all those different challenges. And I, I think it was just interesting to see how different parents reacted to that. And, you know, it makes you think, well, no wonder the kid is so dysregulated, the parent's so dysregulated, you know, the whole situation I want to say go home and come back in November when it's not 95 degrees. So anyway, excuse me. That was just my little reminder with uh, a very important part of our job is helping parents do that. Are you okay? Yeah, I think so. I'm going to take a drink here. (laughs) I'm fine. I think. (gasps) Oh, no. All right. Well, that was my little opener. And let's just move on now and talk about uh, finish up the topic that we started last week, our new favorite things with toys, our new, our newest discoveries with uh, toys that we may or may not have talked about on the show before. And we left off by talking about how much toddlers, and in particular little boys, even though that's pretty stereotypical, like to play with cars and trucks. So we were talking about newer toys kind of in that car truck category. And I mentioned that I had played with this new 
Fisher Price. It's called Little Zoomers Spinning Sound Speedway at several children's homes. And I think on the package that's recommended for children. Oh, I had it written down, but it's not written down on. It's not on this uh, computer. It's on my handwritten notes at home, which are um, on a magnet on my refrigerator, but I don't have um, in front of me right now. But I believe that that toy is recommended for around 12 months. And I've had some older kids try to play with that, that maybe their younger brother or sister got that for Christmas. And some of, some of our kids or the kids that I've played with have liked it because there's a pretty big visual component with any toy that spins like that. Um, you put the the racetrack is actually kind of a big. Have you seen this toy, Kate? Did you say you've not seen this before? I've seen. I describe it. I really don't know. I, the name doesn't mean that I have or I haven't, so I don't really know. Yeah. Well, it's like a racetrack. It's kind of like a baby racetrack, but it's not really a track. It's kind of like a big dome, but it's you know an inverted dome, so that it's more like a pit almost and if there's some the paint is in swirls so that when it you turn it on oh. and the rotate. Now mm-hmm. do you see why it would be yeah. so visually oh, yeah. stimulating? Yeah, for some of our friends. And I have had some kids kind of perseverate on that part. And I think well no wonder, you know, you kind of would love anything that spins, but we put a car with it and we've got that going, you know, so for some kids, that might be a way to hook them into playing with you. But my main thing about this toy is it's very loud, so it's hard to talk over it. Mm-hmm. So then I feel like I'm screaming to get the kids' attention. And, again, that's not always great for our little kids who might get too overwhelmed with too much noise because the toy is pretty loud anyway. Um, and then we talked about last week, it's one of those toys that you, that might work better for an office setting or for a home rather than lugging it from home to home to home for those of us who do home visits because it, you know, it's pretty big. And it's not a toy that I've bought yet. It's just a toy that I've seen. And it was a brand new toy at Christmas time, so lots of kids got that for Christmas last year. Um but, you know, again, I think it could have some kids that may be developmentally, you know, between that 12 and 18-month range and then, you know, be kind of difficult to engage with other um, toys that require lots of fine motor coordination. This one doesn't. You just put the car in and push a button, and then it starts to spin, spin, spin on its own. Um, so there could be some value there for some kids that you're just really trying to move into playing with um, just that next level of toys beyond kind of that baby cause and effect toy. And I, a little girl that I saw that's already turned three that I don't see anymore, his little brother was turning one, actually got that toy for Christmas, and he was a pro at operating it, even more so than my little girl who was, um, that I was seeing who was, you know, turning three in the spring. So, again, kind of that typical development versus delayed development. Uh, it's interesting to kind of watch that, too, with, you know, he knew just what to do, and, you know, he was right around, right over 12 months old, so that was interesting as well. Hmm. But, um, that, yeah, you'll have to look for that when you're at kids' houses and, and tell me what you think of it when you happen to see it. I would not buy that one. But um, there could be some 
value there if you're playing with it already at somebody else's house. Right. What's it called again? Yeah. Uh, little, but it's Lil, L-I-L, oh, apostrophe, yeah. Zoomers, Little Zoomers, Spinning Sound Speedway. And it's pretty loud. Again, that's my other kind of caution about that toy. All right. Um, the other, did we talk about that spinning bus last week? I think we kind of talked about that. Did we talk about that one? With the, It's an older toy. We might not have. And I think you have this toy, Kate, and it's one that you put away. I wonder if it made the cut when you did your big Goodwill when you were moving. It's oh, that no, older I kept toy. that. I still use that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for our kids, again, that are visual kids that need more than just a, um, you know, I, we don't necessarily like the bells and whistles toys. They need something to kind of keep them hooked there, but then their coordination may not be great, so they still can't do a lot. Um, in play yet. This is like I think it's another kind of toy that's just a bump above a cause and effect toy, don't you think? Because it's still pretty simple. It is, especially yeah, and especially kids that need the visual component to want to stay with you in play. You pull the um, the it's, there's a string there, and it's attached to kind of an open. Bus. Mine looks more, you know, like a truck or something with no top, and then there are pegs, and there are characters that are, some are people and some are animals. Is that what your set looks like? Right, exactly. Yeah, and then there's a hole on the character, you know, kind of reminds me of the older Fisher-Price toys, you know, that we had when our oldest children were babies. And you a little just bigger put, and chunkier and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and simple, really simple face. It's not lots of detail, which I kind of like because right. it's easier for those kids, I think, perceptually to get, oh, yeah, that's a daddy. Oh, yeah, that's a mommy. You know, that looks more like an older woman, you know, that kind of thing. And I think mine has a dog and maybe a giraffe or maybe an elephant, something like that. Uh, but pretty recognizable animals and people. Um, and, again, very simple. You just uh, And mine also comes with a little ramp that sometimes I'm, you know, I always use it like a slide, don't you, and say, whee, when you slide the people down or the Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I've kind of resurrected that toy again, and I, you know, just just depends. It seems to be a good one. Um, kids are developmentally a little lower, or they're new on right. their caseload, and you know they haven't really you haven't brought them. I mean, it's a good case okay, where it's kind of functional, but you can kind of do some really early pretend play with it, yeah. and and kids seem to like the we when they go around, or you know they as you pull it, they're on kind of little whatever. That turn so all the spinners, little people go around yeah. spinners or something. Yeah, I'm sure there's some more technical name, but the people <laughs> and animals spin, and kids tend to like that. So there's that again, that visual payoff that you know you can keep them engaged right. with it for longer once they, if if in fact they're the kids who like that kind of thing, and lots of ours are. So if they know that when you pull it and go wee, they spin around, you can see their little eyes twinkle and think, oh, that's cooler yeah. than I thought. <laughs> so they, right, it's oh, not just right, again. there. 
Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The older model had a longer string, and you know none of the uh, because I had that toy when Jonathan and Tyler were little. But the newer one that I just bought when I did my massive rant of toy shopping in November and December um, has a shorter string. And I know that's because of the choking hazard and stuff. But that, it's been a little difficult for some of my kids to stand up and actually pull. It's too they short. Always, I know. I, I complain yeah. every time and every time I think, I'm going to modify that and put a longer string on it because my toys anyway nobody ever plays with unless I'm right there watching. Right. And it's so short right. that even even a very average size 18-month-old is too tall when they stand up to pull it. I think and that's, so too. that's too short. So how, how would you modify that? Are you just going to put another string on the end of that and another handle or uh, maybe cut the yep. string and add the length? Yeah. That's what I think and I'm I, going to do to that too. Yeah. Like you said, it's obvious why they do it and, you know, if if it were just in a toy box, and I, and kids would be allowed to play with it independently. I could see the reason for it, but since it's a therapy toy for me, and I always am right there watching, the string is just too short. So, yeah, cool and that's, toy. I, that's a great idea. Yeah, cool toy, and I think lots of kids again, when you're just trying to figure out where they are developmentally, play wise, and kind of bump them on up past that, mouth it, throw it, look at it phase. <laughs> You know, it does take a little bit of coordination to get the hole on the peg so they can sit it there, does. but there is a payoff when they pull it. So, you know, if you're looking at, um, you know, I just did in my new therapy manual that whole section on cognitive development and why those kinds of milestones, uh, object permanence, cause and effect, and simple problem solving, how those are absolutely positively required before a child is developmentally ready to understand and use words and how we need to work on those with our kids. You know, a lot of times we'll get a kid who's really low developmentally and their parents, you know, are the, when's he going to talk, when's he going to talk, when's he going to talk? And you feel so pressured to work on those words and things when he doesn't even realize that even though the blanket has covered up the object, it's still there. And this kind of toy wouldn't be for a kid who's functioning at that level, but kind of that next level up who's kind of starting to really get cause and effect and starting to really understand simple problem solving. So you introduce these kinds of scenarios in play. And, again, some moms and dads are just going to look at you like you're sitting there playing and not realize all of those little milestones that you're working on. And, again, you need to help parents connect the dots with we have to make sure that they understand these cognitive um, skills or the levels, milestones, whatever you want to, word you want to use, and make sure that he has lots of opportunities to practice these and use these kinds of things independently in play, in his daily routines, because he is not ready to talk until he's above this level. And so you kind of talk them through that. But I think this this toy, again, is very simple, but it lends itself um, to lots of opportunities to develop those early play skills to kind of work through some of those cognitive milestones. And it's developmentally appropriate, not too hard, not too easy. You know, I, I think it's a good one. I, I'm glad I bought a newer version of that and am using that one again. And right. do you know, do you remember what company makes yours or made yours? I don't, Laura. You know, I got it at TJ Maxx. But, um <laughs> So I didn't order online, and I know it's it's often in therapy catalogs. I mean, it's kind of a, you know, but I don't know the brand. A standard. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. This one is, I, I'm not sure how to say this, so you'll have to help me with this uh, pronunciation, B-A-T-T-A-T. How, what would you say for that? Batat? 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 It wouldn't surprise me if it's French or something, and we're totally mastering it. I don't know. B-A-T-T-A-T, how about let's stay with that. And I've had mine for eight years. I couldn't begin to tell you, but I know the brand you're talking about. Yeah, and if it's on... On, uh, I, of course, got mine on Amazon.com, and you can just type in spinning bus, and it will show you that little toy. So I know it will pop up with that. So I think that thing I heard, that's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say on that one, I see a fair number of kids who it takes me a long time or at least a while to get them to get put them on the pegs. They just kind of want to randomly, haphazardly stick them on the bus, and I'm pretty big on, no, they have to sit on the pegs. <laughs> when it gets pulled, they rotate properly. Um, and then the other thing is I'm always paying attention to and trying to encourage them to use the little handle to pull the string because so many, again, it's, it's one of those, and they use a tool. Do they understand you can pull this bus by right. pulling this handle? And some kids get it automatically they see it and they're like woohoo give me that handle I'm going to pull it and other kids you work and work and work and work and work to get them to use the handle they just want to push the bus back and forth so exactly and especially with our kids with motor planning problems you can see them really struggle with okay how am I going to stand up and then turn around to walk but then I still want to see the bus but then I can't now I'm holding it too high so the bus is dumping the people off. I mean, you can really see those little wheels start to spin, you know, figuratively in those little brains (laughs) where they're trying to figure that out. Or a kid who doesn't notice any of that, who just Mm -hmm. kind of falls apart because it's not working right. Or a kid who walks away because he doesn't even get it, that, oh, no, there's a different way to kind of come back and let me try something new to make this work. I mean, you can really assess a lot about cognition, (laughs) Right. From looking at this one toy, and there's lots to work on um, with there. And, again, we had that question from the DI a few weeks ago from Indiana that talked about, you know, how how do you work fine motor into uh, into your therapy session. This would be a winner for that for right. a kid because you, you've got to do. There's lots of lots of coordination stuff going on with that. So. On the one hand, I'd say it's not hard, but then on the other hand, I see a lot of kids – and it's always hard for me to determine. I think, you know, if they're trying to put them on the pegs but they're struggling and fumbling a little bit, I think, okay, cognitively they get it. Maybe maybe right. fine motor or motor planning-wise they're still struggling a bit. But That's what I would say too, yeah. Yeah. You know, you kind of have to do some interpretation of what's the hang-up here, why isn't it working. Um, and sometimes I'm surprised that kids <laughs> struggle with it as much as they do. I mean, it can be a good eye-opener for me too to say, huh, you don't really get that, do you? And it seems See, I know. That's what I mean people. about you can really assess cognition with this toy because mm-hmm. so many times we do sometimes, and you are so funny. This is your made-up term. I'll talk about a kid's motor planning, and you'll say, Laura, it's not motor. It's the big motor. <laughs> it's the big motor. It's cognitive. It's his little brain. He's not, yeah, not really understanding that. <laughs> but it, it is, you do have to separate that. 
and have mm-hmm. enough clinical experience to kind of know and to be able to say, okay, this is the problem. He does, still doesn't realize that the people are supposed to sit on that peg and stand up and there's a hole in the bottom there and he's got to get it fit just right. He still doesn't get that. He's trying to just kind of do the same thing over and over and over without realizing that something's wrong or or trying something new and that's what simple problem solving is you know until a baby knows that that gosh i can change my world by doing different things let me come up with a new idea i mean there's no more example for cognition than that with let me try something new let me do let me move on to plan b plan c plan d that's what cognition is and kids have to be able to demonstrate that before they're developmentally ready to learn language and again, a lot of therapists don't think about that, and a lot of parents have no idea about that at all. I mean, they think that they're just automatically equipped to talk, and it should just right. be falling into place, and they don't, they don't get that connection. So you've got to help parents really make that connection. And if you're a therapist listening and you're thinking, oh, I don't think I really get that connection either, again, I hate to always be pushing products or books, but boy, have I got a book for you. <laughs> The new therapy manual really talks about that and gives you the terminology to use and how to explain it to parents. There's a whole chapter on that and a nice progression on uh, working with toys and and trying, you know, looking at those cognitive milestones and and what toys would be developed and activities would be developmentally appropriate for you to introduce and then how you can carry that over for homework for moms and dads. So if that's an area of your training that you didn't get a ton of background in, and I got absolutely zero in that. Um, when I went to school, you know that that manual will help you sort those things out, and that's uh, on the website at teachmetochart.com. All right, the next toy that I want to talk about. Oh, I wanted to mention, and I don't think I mentioned this last week, or maybe I did. When we had talked about the cuttable foods, the the Velcro foods that you cut, did I give the website last week that I found a a great, pretty cheap set for foods that you can cut? I don't think so, Laura. I don't think so. Yeah, we had talked about that. We didn't talk, I don't think we talked about those foods last week. I think it was the week before when we were addressing that question about fine motor. Okay. And self feeding. Remember that question that we got from the Mm -hmm. BI from. Mm Indiana, and she was talking about how do you address self-eating, and you said, you know, gosh, I always work on that in play. And then we started talking about the foods that you could cut, and we said we got our sets that we still use to this day, like, what, 10 years ago at Walmart. Right. And how therapy toys, a lot of those therapy catalogs have those same sets, but they're more expensive. But I found a cheaper set. It's it's at smallworldtoys.com. And I think this same set is on Amazon, but it's pretty cute. It's um, a plastic set, and we talked about how there are so many wooden sets like at Target or kind of knockoff brand at Walmart. But we really like the plastic sets because they just seem to be a little more appealing to toddlers and they're easier to hold. And for some reason, I just think those plastic ones are a, a better buy. And you can wash them, I think. I mean, you could wash the wooden ones too, but these – I've Really well, the wood eye. also kind of tends to chip and stuff as it the pain, um, yeah. right? So, but parents seem to like the wood, and kids seem to like the plastic. So, do with that <laughs> no, what you with want. The plastic, yeah. yeah. 
But you can use that cuttable food for lots of different things. We talk about it a lot with using it with our pretend microwaves that, again, are getting pretty old now. I think I bought two the last time I bought them. Um, They both have their doors are halfway off the hinges and things. But those little pretend microwaves, you push the button and it's, the light comes on and the spinner in there, the rotating plate will, you know, make your food that's on there spin and those that toy is a winner for any kid that's developmentally, say, twenty four months and beyond. You could probably get a kid to do it a little bit sooner, but I usually wait until kids are at about that level until I know that we've got some pretty good pretending going on so that we so that it becomes about pretending to cook the food and not just pushing the button to watch the plate spin in the microwave. Uh, are you still there? I am. Okay, good. Sorry. That's okay. Um, but that those foods are a, you can do it with the microwave. I we use it with our Cookie Monster toy all the time. Our Puffle Up cook is that Puffle Up? Yeah, Puffle Up Cookie Monster that we both. That, uh, they don't even make that anymore. That you really turned me on to that toy, and we've talked about that on the show before. That we've found that um, on eBay, and the cool part about that toy is you can feed Cookie Monster the food, and it, he has a little backpack, and it travel it magically travels from his mouth to his backpack, and then kids can open the backpack and see the food that they just fed Cookie Monster, and they think that is a riot. Uh, and then last year, you, or was it the year before, for you modified those SpongeBob pillows for us because I had a little boy that loves SpongeBob. Right. <laughs> yeah. I just used that lately, again, recently. It, it was in the, you know, not quite being used collection, and I got it back out. I can't say I've used it too much, but... So how did you modify that toy for a therapist who might have this, or a mom who might have the skills but not the creativity? So let's oh, give gosh, somebody. <laughs> I, you know what? You know I know that I could never do that. That seems like magic to me that you actually were able to take a pillow and mm-hmm. cut an opening or whatever you did. So well, that's that what I did. Basically sewed a tube out of fabric and so and I hand sewed it because. I just saw it from the mouth that I had cut open, one of those big um, kind of fleecy pillows that, you know, they sell at Walmart or wherever. And then I just made a tube. I mean, it took some, um, I don't want to say creativity, some experimenting. Yes, it does take creativity. I mean, and I think that there are some people who skill-wise know how to use a needle and thread, but looking at the at a pillow and thinking, just kind of coming up with, okay, visually, uh, I know what I want it to do, but I don't know how to get there. So, <laughs> well, I had the advantage of having played with Cookie Monster for at least ten years before I decided I <laughs> I could make one out of a, a SpongeBob. Yeah, I just sewed. I, I most of it I did by machine, just because it's quicker and easier and faster, and I'm all about that, and I'm not a good seamstress, so, you know, kids don't care if seams are right or any of that, so I just kind mm-hmm. of fashioned a, the, an appropriately sized backpack, and that was easy enough, just two little straps and a square with a little envelope flap with Velcro that was done, then I sewed a tube, and I cut the mouth open, 
with scissors and put the tube inside the pillow and then cut a hole in the back that fit right into the backpack, sewed that on by hand, sewed the tube into the mouth, and lo and behold, you could stick something in in um, SpongeBob's mouth and it goes down back into his backpack. Just It's very simple. It's just kind of, I, I mean, all kidding aside, it was because I it studied the cookie, original Cookie Monster toy and there's nothing... That side that fancy about it, but just doing it um, took a little bit of experimentation. But anyway, well, I, I think did. it was genius. I think oh. it was genius to take that. And again, I had a little guy who loved SpongeBob, and he was just crazy about SpongeBob to the point of you know, he didn't really like or play with anything else or want to do anything else, and he was a little guy who had so many motor challenges that you, it had to be really motivating for him to want to try, and so he um, liked that. And I think his grandmother ended up trying to make him one, too, after she saw oh, the she one that did. you made for me. Yeah. Oh. I know. I have another slew yeah. of um, SpongeBob kids right now. It's funny how our kids ebb and flow as far as, Lots of Mickey Mouse kids who are really into the Mickey Mouse Club show or whatever the latest is. Yeah. And then some still SpongeBob kids. But there aren't many toys that relate to SpongeBob. I know a lot of parents don't like it. I don't really go by. I'm going to do basically my routine with it anyway. I know some parents are turned off by it and think it's inappropriate for little kids, and I can see their point, but... My thing is, hey, if they know who SpongeBob is and they love him, they're much more likely to really uh, pay attention and work hard to get it and stay with it for a longer yeah. time and all the important exactly. things. So I don't, exactly. I don't really and so you reenact the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you remember when well, I first started talking to you about that and we were trying to think, you know, I, SpongeBob had been on occasionally at my house, but I had not really paid that much attention because, again, my children – even then were older, watching it. And we were even trying to think of what they said, if there were some little play words. And it was funny. I mean, I wish we had a tape of our conversations with us saying, what can I do? What can I use? Help me come up with something for what would entice this kid to want to play? And so, you you know, you have to really sometimes sit down for some of those harder kids and think, what do I have that I can modify? But you're exactly right. We use kind of the same little play routine that we've used with our cookie monster and just transition that to SpongeBob and fed him that plastic food. And, again, that's a really early pretend skill that a, a child um, should be interested in doing, and this little guy again was really notorically challenged. So for him to even be able to hold the fruit and you know the plastic fruit and not put it in his mouth, but try to feed SpongeBob, you know again that's another kind of cognitive thing that we would want him to do to follow directions. So um, that uh, those kinds of toys again in those little routines you can modify any of this and. and Hopefully there will be therapists or parents listening that will hear some of our ideas and think, okay, I don't have that exact toy, but I can use it in this way. So maybe this will generate some ideas for people. Other things that I've done with those uh, cuttable foods, those pretend foods, uh, for lots of kids, um, 
one early skill that's on my developmental test about gestures, you know, and imitating gestures is imitating stirring with a spoon. You know, when we look at typical development, that's one of the first kinds of play that we might see a baby do, even before 12 months. He's in the kitchen with mom, and before this age of baby gates where we kept children in, where we keep children in separate rooms and things now, you know, when we grew up, did, don't you remember your mother cooking in the kitchen or whoever cooked and you being in there playing in the cabinets? And I certainly did that with my children and let them sit and play with a spoon and a bowl while I cooked or a pan uh, and, you know, a spatula or whatever you want to do. So that's, you know, again, a skill that's on the de- the developmental test that I use all the time, which is the Rosetti, is imitating stirring with a spoon Kids really like that. Don't, aren't you able to get a lot of lower-functioning kids to try to imitate that kind of play um, pretty easily if you do it fun enough and kind of stir fast? Oh, enough, yeah. I uh, think it is. I don't know why. It's so I think maybe it's familiar enough to them that they've seen enough of it that it's kind of like, oh, I can do that. And there's no, you don't. Yeah. It doesn't have to be in a circular motion the way that we model it. Yeah. It's You know what I mean? They can kind of do it back and forth uh-huh. and there's no... It's kind of a no-fail if they try it off. They get credit for stirring, so that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it is they funny might kind of know devel- that. Yeah, that it's a developmental skill. And when you think about all the different things that we're looking at that, you know, that's a motor thing. It's in being able to imitate, so it's a cognitive thing as well. And then when they start to really pretend play, you know, that's a couple steps higher on that developmental scale with, you know, starting to pretend to feed someone... So, again, those cuttable foods could be useful for that. I have, um, and kids try to stir, you know, I'll put one of those pretend chips or cookies, and, again, it doesn't have to make sense. In real life, we would never really stir potato chips or a cookie, but to a toddler, that's okay. You're going to put that food in there, and sometimes that will entice them to try to kind of stir a little bit too, like they're cooking like mommy does. Another fun thing that I've done with those cuttable foods, and this is for kids who need to move, is to um, put some in a grocery cart and then let kids kind of um, push that cart around and it gives a little more reason or purpose to our play and then we might push it over to and empty all the all the little cuttable foods into the bag or if they have a pretend kitchen, you know, empty it into a little sink or on the counter there. And, again, for that's a way to keep your kid playing and with you and still kind of give them the movement that they need. I've had a couple of kids with those little uh, pushable grocery carts. That's something I don't have as a regular therapy toy that I would lug in a kid's house. I think our PT friends, though, might do that, you know, use those little carts as when they're working on um, mobility with a kid or early yeah, walking. Sure think you know, get, so. Yeah, I have yeah. had them over the years, but I never had a really good one. And the problem in, yeah. by that, I mean like the sturdy little tykes or whichever brand, you know, the nice ones. The problem right. with the good ones is they're heavier. So, you and know, too big. It would be great yeah, for us. Right, too much pain to lug in. Yeah, but if you had a clinic, an office setting, right. that would be a, that's something that I would buy. Yeah, when we have play, our play group. We certainly use those, and kids love those. So you you can do a lot with those. So that's another idea. Okay, let's move on and talk about puzzles. I own an embarrassing number of puzzles, and so do you, don't you, Kate? <laughs> Need you ask? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, compulsion. And the sad thing is my my personal all-time favorite puzzle is a duplicate of my original, and it's getting to be so bad that I can't even really expect kids to necessarily be able to see what the picture is on there anymore because it's so... Oh, no. Uh, I mean, you can yeah. still see it, but it's pretty scratched up. It's pretty, you know, it's... And I've looked and looked and looked and looked for a replacement, and I think I've just... Outlive the life of the puzzle. I don't know that you can get them anymore, even online, even for any price. But anyway, to answer your question, yes, I have many, many, many puzzles. And by puzzles, and we're talking about the wooden inset puzzles with the little red knobs. We're not talking about the older jigsaw puzzles or for older kids, you know, the 30-piece or the 100-piece or whatever. We're talking about a little six- to nine-piece wooden inset puzzle, and the picture is inside the little cut-out part of the puzzle, and it matches the piece that you take out and put back in, just for a parent that might not quite understand what we're talking about. You can do a ton of language development kinds of activities with the puzzles. Um, Katie, if you were looking at, or ROT friends were looking at fine motor, you can certainly do a lot with those. The problem is some kids get really, really sick of doing puzzles and kind of worn out from puzzles, and especially if you've been the kind of therapist that you take a puzzle and a book, and that's all that you expect the kid to do for an hour, uh, you're going to wear them out with those puzzles pretty quickly. So let's talk about some different ways that we use the puzzles beyond just the standard we're going to lay the pieces out on the floor and let the kid put the piece in the puzzle with very little interaction or direction from us. So let's talk about kind of, and I know this is a curveball. I didn't really talk to you about this kind of topic, but I'm going to start with some of my ideas, and you just feel free to jump right in with anything that... Um, well, as I um, read your manual on the plane, I think I know the answer to this. <laughs> I did. I didn't read it cover to cover, but I read a lot of it, a lot of it. So I think I would have known this anyway because I sometimes do this. But go ahead. Give us some of your your well, ideas. I'm not going to – you're you're talking about how – I was going to talk about those kind of ideas last. I'm talking about just okay. these, these really simple ways that you get a kid to do a puzzle. I usually – we talked about this last week – and maybe the week before, I usually put nearly all of my toys in Ziploc bags, those two-and-a-half-gallon hefty Ziplocs. And so when I take the puzzle out, I don't dump all those pieces out. I hold the pieces in the pu- in the bag so that right. a kid has to include me in play. And no kidding, I've seen parents and therapists just kind of dump the pieces out and then the kid puts them in one at a time and the therapist just kind of labels what they're doing without any real interaction going on. There's no requesting. There's no there's nothing. No there you know, no demands whatsoever on the kid. And for one, that's really boring and two, it's really inefficient, I think, if you're working on language you need to have a more of a purpose for doing that kind of play thing. So if if a kid is not able to sign or name a puzzle piece, he still has to have a way to 
request it, and you can use a general sign like more or please or something like that so that he has to ask to get the puzzle piece. You don't just lay the pieces out, do you, Kate, and let them just have Never. all no nine way. pieces right there? Yeah. <laughs> no way. No way. Uh. Yeah, so you're going to use, even if it's just a general requesting sign like more please to get it, and, you know, you're going to have them do that one by one until like, they get those pieces. And if their language, you know, receptively certainly isn't to the point that they even really understand and or assign meaning to, okay, that's the cow, that's the dog, that's the cat, you're certainly labeling that and you're laying the foundation. You're helping them associate that word with the picture, with the puzzle. But at the same time, you know, you're saying it, you're signing it. When you, that, the child has had enough, uh, repetition, and that would not be, again, one time through the puzzle, and then you're going to kind of play a receptive game with them with it. But this would be several weeks that you've worked on this or that you know that, excuse me, he's, he's starting to learn those words in his everyday life. You could do some things where you're going to hold up two pieces or put them down on the ground and say, get the dog or get the cat or give them some kind of direction so that they're, doing something still and it's not all about you just naming the puzzle piece over and over and over. And again, there's value in that because you've got to teach it first. But at some point you have to know that a kid is (laughs) getting it and it's not always just about that expressive response with them being able to imitate it because a lot, you know, again, you want to make sure that they understand it and, you know, that, that, that they've had time to process it and really Again, know which piece is which name long before you expect them to say it. So that's one thing I do with puzzle pieces. What are some other little tricks that you do, Kate, to entice um, a kid to want to do or pick a puzzle piece? If he looks like he doesn't want to play anymore, and I bet you do this too, I shake up the bag like I'm, you know, it's going to be a really big surprise. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, which one are we going to get? Oh, like it's, uh, they're going to win the lottery on this one. But it's amazing yeah. how just that shaking it up can kind of alert them back to you and bring them back in. And um, get so one thing excited. I do sometimes is I mix them, particularly if I'm yeah. playing the, um, you know, we've kind of done it a while and we've worked on signing the meeting or hoping that they're beginning to associate the word with the actual picture. And then when I'm doing a choice of two and I'm saying, get the dog, where's the dog? I mix them up real very yeah. um an exaggerated big way. Mix, 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 mix. Like, you know, I'm just moving the two pieces around, but somehow. In your hands. Yeah. 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 And they kind of, and I put them down and let them, you know, where's the dog? Get the dog. But somehow the extra added excitement, you know, seems to kind of pull them back in. I've also been known to stick them in their shirts before, particularly if it's an animal. Well, anything, whether it's a choo-choo train piece of puzzle or an animal and you know of course I'm barking or I'm whinnying like the horse or I'm <laughs> as it's going in their shirt and that makes it more fun right. so any kind of very exaggerated very animated very goofy um yeah so that it's more added. of a joke and it's playful right. yeah yeah Another thing I do is hide if they act like they don't really want to do it anymore. I'll say it's my turn, and I get a piece out, and I hide it in my hands, and I act like I'm not going to let them look at it. Well, they automatically mm-hmm. want to see what's in there. Yeah. So that's another way to kind of bring the kid back 
to do that. And then they'll start to do it for me, and I love it when they get to that point. Like they're going to hide it from me and not let me see because then they, if they're ready to name it, if you've heard them even imitate the name, sometimes they'll pop it out if you're saying, what's that, what's that? Sometimes with kids I'll say, I'll try to guess. You know, is it a shoe? Is it a car? You know, when we're doing the animal puzzle. And, again, if a kid is a little bit higher level, maybe an apraxic kid whose receptive language is pretty darn good and they understand that you are saying the wrong thing, they sometimes think that that's really funny too. Um, so that's a way to use it. But there are all kinds of ways to make puzzles more exciting than just dump the pieces out and put the pieces in. And so you have to, again, draw kids in with your voice. And like you were talking about, Kate, that little extra level of excitement so that you're doing something kind of goofy with it. Sometimes I hide a puzzle piece under my leg or behind my back, and then they have to kind of find it a little bit or even fight me for it a little bit before they can put it in. And, again, if that helps a kid do two more pieces than he did the week before, woohoo! that's called progress. And right. so you keep them with you longer. And I think several weeks ago you said this on the show, and I certainly feel this way too, it doesn't really matter to me if he doesn't do all nine pieces of the puzzle every time, just so every week we're moving a little further along. If he can only sit through three pieces next week, but next week he does four, and two weeks after that he's able to do six pieces before he's done, yay, again, that's called progress. He did more than he did those previous weeks. And so you don't have to be all militant about making sure that he does all the pieces every single time. You can come up with some ways to make that more fun, to make it more likely that you'll keep his attention and that he can work through it and get through the whole thing. Um, But, again, you're just making sure that you're moving forward week after week and that he doesn't end up crying every time he sees a puzzle because he thinks you're going to make him do the whole darn thing and not one second of that playtime is fun. Um, Well, and so often it's exactly the therapists who do nothing other than put the pieces out and say put them in who are going to force them to do every last piece. And, you know, I, I think that's, I don't know, I think it's, Futile. Why would you waste your time or the child's time if they're miserable and crying or you're having to pin them exactly. to the floor to put the piece in? It's just supposed right. to be learning, supposed to be fun. They're two yeah. or not even. So um, right. there's plenty of time to glue them to chairs when they get into school. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not when they're toddlers, when they're still babies. The other thing that I think you were talking about at the beginning, and I use those puzzles for auditory processing games all of the time and it's on the uh, my DVDs, it's in Teach Me to Listen and Obey 2, there's a big section about it and in the conferences I show lots of clips about this because you can get so much mileage from a puzzle with, you know, we've already talked about how to kind of work on receptive language with it at the beginning and certainly we all know that we want kids to name the piece expressively at some point. But even when you get a kid a little further along and you're working on multiple step directions or on processing language, you know, you might have a kid who's talking a lot, but who's the example that I always give is, you know, of my little friend whose preschool teacher described her as lost in the classroom, and that's a kid who, again, is really struggling to process language when it's, you know, not beyond that little simple, you know, get your shoes or, 
sit in the chair or whatever when it's beyond that, you know, and again to follow those multiple step directions that we want kids to do in their real everyday lives and especially in a preschool classroom. And so you work on processing multiple step commands. And so with a puzzle, you might have the puzzle across the room on a chair or on the fireplace or on the floor, and you're across the room holding the pieces and you have the kid name the pieces and run, put them in, and so it becomes more like a little race. And any time with older toddlers and preschoolers, if you can get them to do you can get them to do almost anything if it's a race because they think that is so fun. And then the receptive language part of this would be that you're asking them to either get two things, you can bring me the choo choo in the car or get the cow and the horse and have to listen for both parts of that command. Or you could do it with object functions, you know, which one says moo or which one flies. You know, any kind of receptive language, higher level goal, this would be a much more practical way to work on it than even with a book. Or even sometimes a therapist who might ask question after question after question in play and there's no real purpose behind it, this would be a way to do that. And I've got more ideas and kind of can explain how to set up those games a little bit better, and that is what we'll start the show with next week because we are at the end of our hour, and we are not going to go way over since neither one of us are home or in our regular places tonight to do the show. And, Kate, thank you so much for taking time out of your weekend with your family to do the show. I really, really appreciate it. No problem. And we'll pick up with those games next week. Uh, if you have a question for us to try to tackle in the next couple of weeks, please send me an email at laura at teachmanshot.com. And if you want more ideas on how to how to work those in, listen in next week, or get the therapy manual and read it yourself like Kate did on the plane. I did. Right. I was good. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye.